You're listening to Inside Intercom. Intercom, making internet business personal at scale. Learn more at intercom.com. I'm Adam Rissman, Content Marketing Manager at Intercom. Welcome to the Inside Intercom podcast, a show all about learning how to build better products and businesses through conversations with leaders in the worlds of design, product management, startups, marketing, and more. In this episode, Intercom Director of Brand Design Stuart Scott Curran sits down with Erica Hall. Erica is the Director of Strategy at Mule Design Studio, which she co-founded 15 years ago. She's frequently speaking and writing about cross-discipline collaboration and experience design, and her book, Just Enough Research, is a must-read for anyone whose work can be improved with better user insights. Stuart's wide-ranging chat with Erica covers the growing importance of language in design. When people think about language in terms of creating a set of documents that you pipe into an interactive experience, it's really easy to create things that are really flat. And so it really should be a lot more like a conversation. The importance of trust in a client-designer relationship. This is true of any designer you're working with. If you don't just trust them, then they're going to spend all their time trying to placate you and build your trust, and that is time away from solving your problem. And when it comes to designing well, why research simply isn't optional. As long as we talk about research as sort of an add-on or a separate thing, even if you say it's a very important separate thing, that makes it sound like you can do design without information, and that is not true. Erica's advice and anecdotes are applicable to anyone who works on or with a design team. And essentially, that's all of us. Let's get into the interview. Erica, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's fantastic to be here. (laughs) Um, We are super happy to have you here. We've been a big admirer of your your work and your writing for a long time. But for the sake of any of the listeners here who aren't um, super familiar with your work, can you give us like a quick overview of what you do and how you got started with Mule Design and, and what you focus on there? Sure thing. So I am the co-founder of Mule Design Studio, an interactive design and strategy outfit here in San Francisco that we started almost 15 years ago, which is a terrifying number to utter at this point. And we uh, really try to help people and organizations use design to achieve their goals. And, you know, we work with a really, really wide variety of clients and I've, you know, I've been in client services for a long time, and I really enjoy it because I, I love solving problems, and uh, I love learning about new fields. Like every new client we work with is like a, a new course of study, which is really exciting to me. And uh, you know, I meet some really fantastic people, and so it's it's just a lot of fun. And I also have a really short attention span, so I can go in for a project, do some work, and and get out. And I, you know, I got into this because. My um, background in college, I studied philosophy, and uh, if you don't want to be a lawyer, you really sort of have to make up your own field following that. And I've really found that the abstract thinking and argument creation that I, I studied in school is fantastically applicable to uh, to interactive design. And we also mentioned the book that you wrote a little while ago, um, Just Enough Research. Um, we're huge admirers of that at, at Intercom. We, we reference it a lot. And it's probably 
one of the defining books about user research that we've seen recently. And I wondered if you could just talk a little bit about that and like why you decided to write that book. Yeah, I decided to write it after uh, you know many, many conversations. And for anybody in the industry, it's really common to hear, well, it's, it's hard to get clients or business people interested in the idea of research because it just sounds like something that's academic and like homework and not applicable to the day-to-day or doesn't move fast enough. And I came out of a very collaborative, research-driven design practice at the first agency I worked with. And it just seemed like the obvious way to work. And then once uh, you know, I started uh, working with this wide variety of clients and seeing the same sort of objections, uh, I found the need for there to be a very, very brief book that explains why it's important to base your design decisions on evidence and a little bit of how-to, because most research books are written by researchers for other researchers, and they're 500 pages long and cost $75, and that's a hard sell if what you're trying to say is, hey, research is something that anybody can do on any budget in any amount of time. Here, here I've given you 20 pounds of books. Uh, and so I, you know, nobody else had written the book, so I said, well, I guess I'm going to have to do it. And that was coming up for almost three years ago. Oh, yeah. I'm interested to hear if there's anything anything in that book where your, your thinking's advanced or, or changed on that since writing it. I don't think any of the fundamental thinking has changed. Well, I take that back. The thing that has changed is I want to stop talking about research as a separate thing because when I started uh, thinking about and writing that book, I thought, okay, I need to convince people to do research. And then after thinking about it for some time and sitting with it, I thought, no, it's not that people have to do research. It shouldn't be a separate thing. It's that what we're doing is design and we're getting enough information to make good design decisions. Because if you talk about research separately, people, even people who really want it, especially people who want to do the right thing, have this sense of like, the work has to live up to the standards of academic research or pure research. And it doesn't. The whole reason you're doing this is in order to make better design in service of more successful businesses or organizations. And so that's it hasn't shifted any of really the practices. It's shifted the the framework so that people really have top of mind that the goal is a good product or service. The goal is not to meet any sort of research standard. And so I've started writing and talking about it a lot more in that way to say this is a necessary part of design because I think as long as we, we talk about research as sort of an add-on or a separate thing, even if you say it's a very important separate thing, that makes it sound like you can do design without information and that is not true. Yeah. And I think like as a designer, I think we've probably all been guilty about thinking about research as like a necessary evil or something that's trying to push us in a particular direction that quote unquote artist in us like doesn't mm-hmm. doesn't want to go. But I think like in reading that book, it really kind of brought home to me as to like how that, you know, should play like a fundamental part in in the process and one part that was interesting to me was when you talk about setting the conditions for for good design is you know a clear goal the right resources and the right information research obviously plays a lot into the latter but how would you define the others is there there one area that's a larger struggle than the other two how do you see those all like coming Mm -hmm. together 
I'd say, you know, we talk a lot about the goal, like having a clear goal. And that sounds so obvious. But what we find when we work with um, with our client organizations is you might have a goal. You might have a goal like increase the number of users, increase, you know, customer retention, something like that. But everybody's going to have their own individual goals. And it, it is actually really, really challenging to clearly distill what you're trying to accomplish into something that everybody working towards that goal is in agreement on. And that's absolutely necessary because if you don't do that, and I think you see this in a lot of organizations and you see this in in even small brand new startups, it's like, what are we here to accomplish? And that actually takes some thinking and that might actually take some investigation. But if you don't have that, then you'll never know when you're successful. And that's that's really challenging. And that's you can't shortcut that. And I think what happens with a lot of people who want to move fast is they say, OK, we'll just do a lot of work and then our goal will emerge. And and that's not how people conduct any other aspect of their lives. Yeah, there's an attitude about just like continually moving fast, especially with like smaller companies. But it doesn't necessarily always lead to like a goal oriented outcome. Um, yeah, you get nowhere fast. You, you get nowhere fast. You just kind of spin your wheels a little bit. And I think about like as a designer and thinking about design work, we often think about like good design just sells itself and like we should just do the work and that's going to speak for itself and everybody's going to be on board with that. And I wonder about the additional element of like client buy-in to that, like what makes like a compelling design story and are there any nuances that are especially important with dealing with, with clients? Oh, absolutely. I think what happens with designers, because this isn't often a topic that in traditional design education, you touch on at all. You know, you you learn to talk about design with other designers. And what you have to do is figure out how your work fits into what's important for your client or for the, uh, the people you're working with. And if you don't know, because I think sometimes designers create what they think is good design against some abstract uh, set of criteria for good design, but they don't really think, well, how is this good design for the business I'm working for? How does it help them really meet their goals? And you have to start with their goals and their language and uh, their sense of what will make something successful and fit how you're describing your work into that. And that is an essential part of design because there's no there's no good. There's no absolute good design. There's only good with reference to what you're trying to accomplish. And designers spend a lot of time talking about design to other designers, <laughs> which, you know, really doesn't help. Mm-hmm. I think it just kind of perpetuates like an echo chamber type situation. Yeah. It really does. And I'm, you know, like I said, I'm really interested in solving problems. And I think you really have to start with being a little, you know, if you're, sol- if you're helping solve somebody else's problem, the, the way to do that is not to make yourself feel comfortable or make yourself feel superior. You know, I think it takes a lot of personal introspection and work to get over yourself as a designer and to say that just because you have a particular practice and you have a particular domain that you're comfortable in and the, the people you're working with are comfortable in, in a different domain, that that somehow sets you apart or makes you better like it's on you to close that gap because your work would not exist without 
the business or the client who requires that design. Right. You're listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. Don't send visitors down a dead end. Let them ask questions when and where they have them in real time. See how at intercom.com slash acquire. Let's talk a little bit about the growing importance of, of language in mm-hmm. design. I know that's like something you're you're pretty passionate about. And earlier this year, you stopped by the Intercom office to give a Creative Mornings talk titled Stop Writing for the Web. And in that, you basically explained how interaction design falls a little bit flat when we create language that's that's literary rather than what real people use in, in real life. And there's an interesting crossover with, with our mission at Intercom, which is all about making internet business personal. Um, so language is a big focus of ours. What's wrong with the, with the status quo and how should we be approaching language and interaction design? Uh, yeah, that's a, I mean, that's a great question. And it's something that, you know, I've been talking about off and on for a, a long time. I mean, humans, fundamentally, we interact through language. But a weird thing happens as soon as we start to think about what we're doing as writing. This whole other set of rules and restrictions and standards comes into play. And there's been this historic split in interactive design between, you know, it's like there's visual design and there's uh, there's coding and there's interaction design and then there's content and content is a thing that you fit into a system you've already created but the actual truth is that you know meaning is what drives interaction right it's not you know the other stuff is just the framework for that and i think what's happened is that when people think about language in terms of creating a set of documents that you pipe into an interactive experience, it's really easy to to create things that are really flat because you're writing something that's a thing, not an, a lively interaction. And so it really should be a lot more like a conversation. And the conversation and it should be the thing driving the interaction because it should feel like a natural conversational flow. And if you don't start from that place, if you start from the place of like, oh how do the interface elements behave or move around or what's the the layout uh, and you don't start from what does it mean and what's the interaction at every point from a verbal perspective uh, everything gets really really disjointed and creates a lot of problems but virtually no teams are set up such that it starts with the interaction in language and then drives towards uh, how that looks or um, or how interactive elements behave. Would you make any suggestions to a designer or a team who, who wanted to try and think a little bit more along those lines? Uh, I'd say the, the biggest one is to kind of start with the role play because people always do this role play of like, oh, we're going to create personas or we're going to create user stories and then we're going to run them through this interaction. But really, so many of the systems that we're creating are proxies for human interaction. Like, we don't interact with travel agents anymore. We get on a, 
orbits or uh, travelocity. And so your system, if your system is like a service, it's a proxy for somebody else. So actually sit down and have, you know, a conversation and say, well, what, what would somebody ask? And what would they expect the response to be? And, and write it like a play to start with and then say, okay, well, what do we need to provide at every stage? And then sort of how do we use, uh, you know, visual design or interactive design to support that conversation that a person is having with a system that's standing in for another human. And start from there. Don't start from drawing a lot of boxes and then trying to fill those boxes with words. But that is a very uncomfortable situation for designers that have been brought up through graphic design or brought up through visual design with a sense of, oh, we create a form and then fill the form with words. And I feel like, especially at this point in time, there's an added uh, layer to that with like the rise of the bots. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, which is like another aspect to that. And I feel like many of these like early like chatbot designs if you want to if you want to call them that maybe they're falling a little bit flat in so much as that they're designed with maybe the aim of being too human or trying to replicate the human experience rather than solving a particular problem like do you have like a point of view on on those and and what a good direction to take them in would be why yes Yes, I do have a point of view. I thought you might. <laughs> so the reason why bots are suddenly so popular is because messaging apps are so incredibly popular. You know, people do not call each other anymore. Uh, people text each other. And they're really using, um, you know, they're spending all their time in these messaging apps, you know, and, and people are using Slack now instead of email. And so everything's going to this interactive chat messaging place. And so I think there was an idea of like, oh, everything's going to be a chat bot now. But that's because, you know, these hype cycles all depend on, oh, this is the next big thing. This is the silver bullet. Like, I'm surprised we're still talking about bots and not like everything is an augmented reality monster catching game now, you know, that's sort of eclipse bots. Um, but what it comes down to is nobody actually cares, like no individual human cares if their interaction is a bot or is another person or is a web app. They just want to do the thing that's actually useful and actually pleasant and interesting and most importantly, fast to use. And I think what's happened is that, you know, having a convert, like there are times when having a conversation really, really is fast. But if you're not having a conversation with another human, the chances of the bot being wrong are really, really high because a human can adjust immediately to interaction, right? A customer service person, if they hear you're frustrated on the phone, they can immediately respond. Or if you ask them a question, they have this immense wealth of knowledge that is impossible to program into a bot. And so it's not just the texting that's exciting to people. It's so many other things about, you know, the efficiency of that interaction and about getting that little drop of, of dopamine that comes from from texting and all of that, that that sort of keeps you kind of addicted to it. 
And so the problem with bots isn't that they're being too human. It's that, again, they're optimizing for the wrong things. Like I, I played around with one the other day that was supposed to be a give your coworkers props for things bot. And it was like super chipper. And I had a hypothesis. I'm like, okay, I'm going to put this in our Slack room and I'm going to put it in a personal Slack channel I'm on. And I bet people are going to turn homicidal in like five minutes. And I was absolutely correct because... The bot was only human in the most shallow way because it didn't talk like any actual human would talk. Like if you had a person in your office who came up and was like super chipper and like, (laughs) hey, I just want to let you know that Bob thinks you're awesome and super swell. And if every interaction you had with this person was in that tone of voice, you would want to punch them in the face. And so the people creating this bot had no understanding, no deep understanding of how humans actually want to interact or what makes humans feel validated at work. They're like, oh, we can just make a bot for this and it'll be super cheerful and people will like that. And no, the answer is no. And they got funding for this thing. And I think it was because everybody's like, oh, everything's bots now because people really enjoy texting. And you have to look a little bit further to say they don't just enjoy texting for its own sake. It's because there's a payoff and there has to be a payoff. It has to be faster. Like it's not faster to order a pizza using a bot that's chatting with you than it is to just go online and click things in a menu. And so I think it's that failure of really understanding what problem they're solving and really understanding what makes something human. You know, what makes something human is the fact that it recognizes your needs and responds to your needs and is very quick and very efficient. It's those values that are really, really important. Not something that chats with you and has a few automated canned responses. I mean, I talk about Douglas Adams a lot because he was so right about so much and Uh, you know, in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And he talked about robots with real people personalities and how awful, like there was an elevator that was incredibly cheerful and chipper and like, oh, I'm so happy to be taking you up to the next floor. And, And doors that would sigh happily when they opened for you and how this made... Um, all the actual humans full of rage. And I think everybody working on an interface absolutely just needs to go back and read Hitchhiker's Guide again because he was right about all of this stuff way before it was getting real. And now it's getting real. And everybody's like, oh, this is going to be the next big thing. We're all, everybody likes to chat with each other. So people are going to want to chat with really, really stupid, cheerful, canned robots. And that's not true because what people want to do is get things done really fast. And easier. And, and easier. And the temptation is that, you know, yeah. with this new technology, it becomes a trend and we want to just like implement it everywhere, mm-hmm. um, just where it's not required or where yeah. it's not actually useful. Exactly. I mean, you know, we have uh, Alexa turns on our lights now, you know, because we, we have the, the Amazon Echo and it's working now. But for a while, you're like, Alexa, turn on the lights. And Alexa's like, I'm sorry, I can't play you that John Major song. And you're like, what? Because it's that guessing wrong. And it's the time it takes and the ambiguity and all of those things. Ambiguity and uncertainty increase the perceived amount of work. Right. And I think that's what a lot of these bot makers are are missing is how much work they now require on the part of the user to try to figure out what answer they need to give to the bot to get what they need. And it's just incredibly frustrating and it feels like so much work and all you want to do is, you know, go and like select something from a menu. 
Whereas if you think about like a customer service situation, I'm, I'm happy. I never want to wait on a phone tree again to talk to a customer service person on the phone. That's a great place to get, you know, some interaction in there with a with a bot because the person and, I, and this is awful because I'm, I think feel like I'm replacing, you know, phone customer service jobs with robots. Um, but it really would be a better interaction if the person is just there reading a script with five limited options anyway like remove the phone queue and allow customers to just get on the chat with the bot to select the thing they need because there is such a limited set of things you can kind of guess at. Yeah, absolutely. Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about Offscript. It's a new series of candid conversations with intercom leadership all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing. Episode one is on our YouTube channel right now. Here's a teaser of what you can expect. I don't want to come across as overly dramatic, but for every single tech company, this is an adapt or die moment. It's inevitable that all businesses are going to go AI first. It's just a matter of time. In this post-AI world, new companies will rise, old companies will fall. Of course, some of these new companies will flame out. Some old companies will pivot successfully too. I don't think any of us could see a world where this wasn't going to be one of the biggest changes in the customer service landscape ever. The world we care about is customer service, and it's so patently obvious that the old way will be quickly obsolete. We're racing hard to build a future which will result in better experiences and results for customers and businesses too. It's not just a product change, it's a mindset change. Let's make space to talk about all of this. We have so much we want to share. We want to explore these ideas in the open. We want to provoke new ones in you. We want to learn from your reaction. You just click the kind of like big stupid go button, right? And see what happens. Welcome to Offscript. That's all to come on Offscript. The first episode is out now. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. You have a lot of clients approaching Mule um, because they hear that quote-unquote design thinking is a much. I think I know what you think about that phrase. But they maybe don't know what that really means. And you've said previously that a studio is its clients. Obviously, there's a lot of subtleties to client-creative relationships that are just like unknown, the beginning point of when you start to work together. Um, so how do you go about selecting your, your clients at Mule? Uh, we actually have a really clear set of criteria, and having applied these over the years means that a lot of the people who reach out to us at this point are aware of the, the kind of work we do and the kind of client relationships that are going to be successful. The most important thing is that they have, you know, as I mentioned before, a, a clear goal. Like, we can't help anybody who doesn't have a goal. And for this reason, a lot of times we don't work with too many early-stage companies because they it's more like they want to run an experiment than they have a goal. So they can just do whatever, you know, and build their prototype and they don't really need us. But you need to have a business or organizational goal. The organization has to be doing something that we really feel good about having our name associated with that we want to put out in the world. And this doesn't just mean like a mission-driven organization. Like it could be a game. It could be a business that's just selling some useful software, providing a useful service to people. The people we work with have to absolutely believe in what they're doing and not just cynically come to us and say, oh, we've found this niche that we really want to exploit, but we don't really feel like we're solving a real problem for these people. You know, because if the people we're working with don't really believe in what they're doing, that won't be a good client relationship. 
And, you know, in conjunction with this, it has to be a problem that's really essential to the business. Because if somebody just comes to us and they're like, well, you know, we've got a little extra budget, you know, in Q4 and we want to try something, that project will go terribly because nobody will be really invested in it, you know. And what clients don't really get is how much they need to participate in the process. A lot of times people will come to us and say, oh, and this is kind of where design thinking comes in. Like, oh, it's this magic. Like, you're designers, which means that whatever you do is like magic sprinkles on hard business problems. And it's like, no, what we're doing is we're helping you do your business better. You know, we're working in partnership with you. And so it's up to the clients to really bring the knowledge and to challenge every, you know, one of our ideas just as much as we'll challenge every one of their assumptions. And so if somebody comes to us and they say, the future of my organization depends on the success of this project. My job is on the line. This absolutely has to generate results. That project will go well. But if somebody's just like, eh, we're just going to try this, like, it'll be really, really frustrating. And then there needs to be trust, right? Because some people come in and, and I feel terrible when we meet new clients who've been burned by designers in the past. Like right. they've, they made big promises, they didn't deliver, or we talked to one set of people and then a totally different set of people did the work. I mean, that's why we've stayed really small because we never want to have that kind of like everybody who works with us is fantastic. And there's no like secret um, army of contractors, you know, on the other coast or something like that. We all work very collaboratively together to solve problems. But it's really hard if somebody comes in and they don't trust us because then it's this huge overhead. Like people want to know what makes projects cost less and go faster. And it's it's having that trust and it's making decisions quickly. Because if you have your designers, and this is true of any designer you're working with, if you don't just trust them, then they're going to spend all their time trying to placate you and build your trust. And that is time away from solving your problem. Yeah. And many of our listeners are probably at like fairly early stage companies where they just made or about to make their, their first design hires. I know you've got some openings at, at Mule Design too, so hiring's like pretty pretty top of mind. Mm-hmm. Um how do you assess like what makes a, a great designer like outside of just like having a slick portfolio? I'll tell you, we look at the portfolio fifth. I would say, of all the things we look at. Right. Because I think there's a lot of emphasis on having a portfolio, but a portfolio is not necessarily meaningful because, especially for our work, we're not designing, you know, flat images. And it's really easy to look at applications or online services as a series of pictures. But what we're interested in is a quality of thinking. And we're interested in designers who can express themselves clearly, who are really intellectually curious, who really want to grow, and who not only think about the what, like so much of design education is focused on the how. Like there's a magazine called How. But as a designer, you need to be focused on the why, because if you don't know the why, then you don't know which how to apply, right? Because good design, like good craftsmanship is part of that. The artifacts are part of it, but it's the ability to help people make good quality decisions because that's the difference between good design and bad design. It's not just the craft, but it's the ability of the designer to get all the people involved to make a good decision. I mean, this is why there's so much bad design in the world, not because we have a great 
you know, an enormous lack of competent designers. It's because designers are often terrible at helping the people they work with and for make good decisions. And so terrible things get out in the world. And one thing that designers, like, especially as they're as they're fresh out of school, they have to learn how to work alongside like other people if it's like technical disciplines like engineering or if it is like research. Like what can we do as, you know, founders, as as owners, uh, to help like enable those designers succeed? I'd say the most important thing is to be clear about what will make you successful and let the designer know. Because I think sometimes, and we've run into this, especially with earlier stage companies, the idea of like, oh, we want you to just sort of speculate. We want you to create like this blue sky solution, but it has to work in the real world. And so be really, really clear about what design work needs to accomplish so you don't end up with something that's beautiful and delightful and lovely, but doesn't meet a goal and won't help you, you know, for your, for your users or for your organization and then won't succeed. You know, people talk about the business value of user experience. User experience has no business value inherently. You really have to have like total clarity about what you want to accomplish and be able to convey that to the designer and then evaluate their work based on that. And don't just come in and say, you know, I'm a genius founder. Guess what's in my head? And it's surprising how many people who are otherwise pretty smart people who have that sense of like, oh, I have this thing inside me and the job of the designer is just to make a beautiful rendering of what's in my head. And that's not going to succeed no matter how beautiful that rendering is. So just be, be honest about those things and then be willing to have that give and take and also be open to being questioned and be open to being challenged and let the designers you're working with through this process get you to a place that they can challenge you and make your ideas stronger. And I should say that you do like a series of great workshops at, at Mule Design aimed at, you know, empowering designers to talk about their work like the value of research have you seen anything in like organizing and running those workshops that points to maybe like a, a deeper level of understanding of design and how designers should should carry themselves within companies uh yeah i'd say the thing that we really see through running these workshops is how common some of these situations are and that they have nothing to do with the skills or the craft of the individual designer and everything to do with the organizational dynamic. Um, If an organization has a culture in which it's possible to question authority and have open, honest conversations, uh, design can work and be successful. But I've talked to people who come from very, very political organizations where you actually can't question how things are done or you can't speak candidly. And so I think that's what really comes through. It's like politics are responsible for a lot of really, really bad design. And nothing makes a business run more efficiently than honesty. Right. Because like I was saying with trust, there's an enormous overhead to not being able to speak openly in an environment of mutual respect. And that's that's something I feel like people aren't talking about enough is that it's so much work to, you know, maintain this consensus that everything's okay when it's actually not or that people are actually working towards the same goal when they're not. And I've seen people who really who come from environments where they have a lot of fear about speaking honestly and that's something when you when you're 
staff is thinking like that, that means that that's where their brain is going. Their brain is going to how do I work the politics, not how do I make my business successful? Yeah. And designers have a responsibility to themselves and the end users, I, I guess, with what they put out into the world, you know, and uh, you know, it's my point of view that designers need to feel empowered to mm-hmm. to question certain things that they are being asked to do. Like even if it, it doesn't necessarily fall within the realms of you know the pixels that they're putting on the screen. Have you seen that become a little bit more prevalent? Have you seen designers, you know, feeling empowered to be more involved at like other stages of the process and and being able to to speak up and flag, you know, potential issues that maybe affects like what they're actually putting out into the world? I think so. I think that has been one of the uh, positive side effects of the you know, hype around design thinking and designer founders is just a sort of general sense that design is important. Even if people misunderstand what design is or the role of design or, or don't have a lot of clarity, I think there has been a sense of, oh, we should listen to designers because they are problem solvers. They're not just a pair of hands or not just, you know, pixel pushers. And I think that sense has been kind of pervading the business and technology world and making it better. And I would say it's on designers now to really take advantage of this and don't just take it as like, okay, well, now I can do whatever I want. I don't need to ask questions. I can just do things and say, you have to listen to me because I'm the designer, but should take that as an invitation to really engage in a dialogue about what the best course of action is. Erica Hall, thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more episodes, visit soundcloud.com slash intercom. If you'd like to subscribe, search for Inside Intercom in iTunes or Stitcher. And for even more great content, check out blog.intercom.com.